story is the key that can unlock someone else's prison. If you give it to God, He transforms your test into a testimony, your mess into a message, and your misery into a ministry. What God is bringing you through at this very moment is going to be the testimony that will bring someone else through. We find in Revelation 12:11 that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We are inspiring to bring God's truth to the listeners through real-life talk and discussions and testimony that hold great impact. We hope to inspire others to grow their faith and get out there and share their testimony. So sit back and experience the power of testimony. So welcome back to the, another episode of the Overcome Podcast. Uh, today we're back doing another uh, guest episode. And today we have the honor of having my good friend, David Oliverio, um, go to church with him at Harrison Faith. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to be diving into a uh, little content up front here, talking about some homesteading and culinary stuff and diving in, jumping a little forward to Thanksgiving. And then we'll dive into David's uh, testimony after that. So, uh, David, ask you a few questions here just about yourself sure. so you can introduce um, yourself to us. Um, so again, David Oliverio, uh, you, how long have you been here in Arkansas? Cause you came from Portland, Oregon. That's, is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So how many years have you been here now? I've been here since August of 2008. 2008. Okay. So about 13, 14 years, something like that. Okay. Yeah. I've known you now for just going on two years, I guess. Right. About that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, since, uh, we met at church, um, I guess a men's night was the first time we I think so. met. I'm trying to think back to when we even did first meet, probably with uh, one of Ryan's men's nights. I think it was the couples group we had over at Ryan's house for a little while. That's like, right. right before COVID hit. Yeah, yeah. I think. Okay, one of the, yeah, the one of the life groups. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So um, anyway, since then, me and David have um, not got to do as much sometimes as we'd like, but we've kind of dove in, both of us, into... Um, getting some chicken set up and and David probably a little bit more homesteady than myself um, diving into getting some ducks and goats and pigs and chickens that's what you got right now right I don't have the goats yet but I'm okay. working on it not the goats so um, what kind of got you into that in the first place um, well one I'm a big foodie I love to cook I'm very passionate about my craft and I like knowing where my food's coming from and exactly what I'm eating and what all goes into the process behind it. And there's just something that's satisfying and relaxing about kind of doing that stuff with my own hands and not having to rely on the grocery store to provide for my family, you know? Right. So speaking of culinary, you went to culinary school back in Oregon, yeah. right? So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, that was, geez, about 20 years ago now. I feel old now. Um, I went in for hospitality and restaurant management, but I had to leave, unfortunately, about halfway through because I couldn't afford to stay in anymore because student loans were pretty rough then. So I left it about halfway in. Okay. So what kind of experience did you get there? Like what all did you actually learn? Uh, being in management, kind of dabbled a little bit of everything. I did some baking, some cooking, some bartending, some marketing, some business law, kind of a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so you were talking to me the other day 
um, about maybe setting up a Airbnb. Is yeah. that something you want to talk about? Sure. Not a secret. No. <laughs> um, so you're kind of wanting to do a kind of farm to the table approach with yeah. that potentially. So what's your ideas on that? Um, well, I've had a lot of experience over many, many years working working in uh, restaurants and hotels and whatnot. And that's kind of where my heart is, is in serving other people and kind of being a host to people and not taking guests in my home for dinner and stuff like that. So yeah, my wife, she's more of the administrative side of things as far as doing paperwork and accounting and managing money and paperwork and stuff like that, which has never been my strong suit. Mm. So I figured that'd be a way we can kind of combine our school sets together and make a business we can pass on to our kids and stuff like that and kind of get our foot in the door as far as, you know, bringing homesteading to the public and kind of, you know, teaching other people what we've learned and kind of showcase everything that we've done. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, how long out do you hope to achieve that? Is that a kind of a short-term goal or? Uh Hopefully sooner than later, <laughs> because, you know, we got a pretty big family at the house right now and, you know, we like being able to take care of them and get them involved in everything. And, you know, I don't want to wait too far out to the point I'm too old. I can't really do a whole lot with it. You know, if I'm 75, 80 years old, I'm not going to be chopping firewood or building anything, <laughs> you know? Right. So I to hopefully in the next five years or less is kind of my goal. So how important do you think it is for, people especially right now in today's times to try to at least start with backyard chickens or get some form or fashion of kind of a homestead lifestyle to at least provide for themselves in some way i think it's huge because these days people don't have a relationship with their food anymore and it's sad you know uh you know nowadays especially post-covid you know, there's always services now that will deliver meals to your house and just got to put them all in a frying pan and cook it which is fine if you can't cook, but you know, how many times has that changed hands from the time it came to the farm to your table? Right. And you know, you don't know who packaged it, who delivered it, how it was taken care of, what kind of environment it grew in, what kind of soil the vegetables came in, what the animals ate that you're about to eat. You don't know any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, going to Walmart now that you're grocery shopping, there's the, you can stay in the car and just tell them what you want. They'll bring it to your car for you. You can't even pick your own tomatoes or anything. You know, just say, I want these and they'll bag it up, bring it out to you. Yeah. So I know like, you know, of course, having the culinary side of things, it's, it's even more appealing to do that. But, um, I think people are missing out just by not doing those little things like that when it comes to your food, you know, to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, I think God intended us to appreciate our food and and what he's provided for us and and made for us. He gave Adam and Eve all of Eden to manage and to take care of. And, you know, since then, little by little over the course of years, we kind of lost track of that and we don't care about it anymore. For sure. That's sad. So you and your wife were a big blessing to us when we had uh, Reed. And if you guys haven't listened, episode nine is is about Reed's testimony, but um, you cooked us a a pretty awesome meal and brought over to us. So thanks again for that. You're welcome. Um, had, uh, some homemade mac and cheese, some homemade cornbread, which is, uh, I think one of David's uh, specialty famous items, he says, uh, and it sure tasted like it. Um, and then we had some, uh, just like roasted chicken mm-hmm. that was seasoned up really good with some rosemary, I think it was and, and whatnot. Um, some garlic and all of that, uh, and then some homemade, um, kind of a mixed berry cobbler. 
Uh, so it was really good. And so I think if you're serving stuff like that at your Airbnb, you'll have a, a big hit with that. Um, so what is your favorite, uh, like item or meal to cook? Uh, probably one thing my family likes the most is my homemade macaroni and cheese. Cause yeah. I make it all from scratch. I don't use that crap in a can or a box <laughs> or a velvet or any of that nonsense. You know, I usually use a couple of different kinds of cheese, make my own cheese sauce and it's a lot more of a process, but I like to do it. So for somebody just starting out, maybe moving into the holidays, if they're wanting to make homemade mac and cheese, what's the, just the base of a good cheese sauce, like the roux or whatever you call it? Uh, cheese sauce is probably one of the easiest things to make. You take probably a couple of tablespoons or so of butter and equal parts of that and some flour and cook it down in the pan together. And then you add your milk to it and get kind of let it kind of thicken up a little bit. Then you add your cheese and cheese and milk, cheese and milk, cheese and milk, I guess is the volume that you want. Uh, we usually use it for a basic cheese sauce, like that big Fiesta blend bag you get at like Walmart and stuff like that. Mm. It's a blend of like four different cheeses or something. We'll use that or dish cheddar if you want something a little more basic and simple, it's fine. And what I'll do is I'll drain the noodles out when I cook them and I'll coat some sour or cream in there because it helps the sauce adhere to the pasta a little bit better and adds more of a creamy twang to the, the mac and cheese a little bit. And sometimes I'll put some breadcrumb or something on top to kind of give it a little something extra. Yeah, awesome. I actually tried my hand at it the other night. I've made it a few times, but um, I'll take some pointers from that in the sour cream. That's new. I hadn't heard of that, so I'll try that next time and see what, what that happens. I'm assuming that was in the batch that you made mm -hmm. us, so um, I could tell there was something a little different, so that was probably it. So moving into Thanksgiving, we'll kind of bypass uh, bypass um, uh, Halloween and moving to Thanksgiving. <laughs> We're what, like 26, seven days out from that yeah. um, or so, right at a month anyway. Uh, got some Thanksgiving food facts here, and we'll kind of pick your brain at how well in your culinary masteries <laughs> you know some of these Thanksgiving right. foods. Um, so the first one here is how many million pounds of turkey the week of Thanksgiving, and it's usually whole turkeys, do you think Americans um, buy? Did you say how many pounds or how many or how many million pounds? How many million pounds? Million pounds. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's say 168 million little shy 365 million pounds of turkey the week of thanksgiving wow yeah uh for those of you that don't like turkey um there's ham how many million pounds of ham do you think probably not quite as much of turkey i'd imagine would say 200 not quite 77 million pounds yeah overshot it okay um how many pounds of uh, just regular white potatoes Fifty? Two fifty. Two hundred and fifty million pounds of potatoes. I suck at math. So almost as much as the turkey. <laughs> um okay, it's gonna be less than that on sweet potatoes. How many million pounds of that? Uh one seventy five. Nope. Fifty million pounds of sweet potatoes. How many pounds of rolls? This is a lot for uh how much does a roll weigh, you think like? Depending on the roll and who's making it. <laughs> That's true. 
Uh, probably. And we're talking ounces, like. Six to eight ounces, I'd imagine. Yeah. So how many millions, or no, sorry, this isn't pounds. I misspoke. How many million rolls do you think are purchased? Not in weight, but just number. Let's say 300. Nope. 40.5 million rolls are purchased. Yeah. Um, okay. How many dollars, how many millions of dollars of seasoned breadcrumbs are purchased? Uh, 75. Close. Uh, $96 million worth of seasoned breadcrumbs. We're in the wrong business, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, how many pounds of cranberries are consumed during the holidays? In 85. Ooh, really close. 80 million pounds of cranberries, which includes over 5 million gallons of jellied cranberry sauce. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, a few more here. What about frozen vegetables? How many millions of dollars is spent on that? In our house? <laughs> um, 95. $137 million spent on frozen vegetables. Campbell's cream and mushroom soup, probably the number one soup bought during that time mm -hmm. um, for your classic green bean casserole. Um, let's see. What percentage of... So out of all the cream and mushroom soup, what percent of it being Campbell's do you think it is? I'd say at least three quarters. 40%. So a little under half, but, you know, in today's economy, we'll definitely be buying great value. Right. <laughs> um, how many thousands of pounds of fresh pumpkins are purchased each year for Thanksgiving? Uh, 150. 480. 480,000 pounds of fresh pumpkins. I was a little shy on that one. Which is heavy, for as heavy as they are, I'm shocked that it's not millions of pounds. Right. So we're eating 365 million pounds of turkey, but only buying $480,000 or pounds of uh, pumpkins. That's kind of, that's odd. So not decorating as much, I guess. Lots of turkeys. Um, how many millions of pies are purchased for the holidays? Millions of, uh, 300,000. 19 million pies are purchased for the holidays. Ooh. Yeah. While 50 million uh, was spent on pre-made pie filling. That's cheating. <laughs> right. Exactly. What's your favorite pie? Homemade pie. The only pies I'll eat is hot or cold. <laughs> uh, I just about all of them except cherry. I'm not a big cherry person. Not a cherry fan. I like a good pecan pie. I like pecan, any. apple, coconut cream, yeah. chocolate cream, any of those. Yeah. Any cream pie. You like much. raisin? You ever had raisin pie? Raisin cream? I haven't had raisin cream, but I've had mincemeat. That's kind of the same thing with like apples and raisins and stuff. And there has been a while though. Gotcha. I'll have to have a, I don't really make a good one, uh, but my mom has a really good uh, cream pie. I'll have to have her make some and give you one. Mm -hmm. They're one of my favorites. All right. How many calories during the holiday? Oh boy. Do you <laughs> think <laughs> um, Americans eat? Uh, calories per day? Uh, just during that holiday. Oh, during the holiday. So like Thanksgiving day, I guess. Uh, probably at least 2,000 or more. It says between 2,500 and 4,500,000 calories. Oh boy. Or not 1,000, but 4,500 uh, calories. Yeah. 
which is equivalent to eating between four and eight Big Macs for one meal. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so McDonald's is healthier than it. <laughs> um, let's see. Since it's a myth that the average person gains five pounds over the holiday, most people only gain about eight tenths of a pound. So most amateurs. of that would probably be, uh, yeah, right, <laughs> amateurs. <laughs> Uh, most of these people, most of the weight would probably be water weight with all the sodium and all that stuff. But probably. anyway, um, so looking forward to Thanksgiving. You you planning on a big meal with your family? Uh, yeah, we usually go over to my wife's aunt and uncle's house. They got the whole family over there, a big old potluck thing. So it's usually quite the quite the ordeal. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. We always get together, um, usually with both of our immediate families. So me and my mom, we like to come up with the menu and kind of try some new things we usually integrate like the classic stuff but try to try to find something new last year we did a uh pork loin with uh i think it was pecan crusted pork loin with like a gravy and cranberry it was really good yeah sounds good yeah so anyway um let's dive into your testimony okay all right. So uh, I know you shared this at a men's group a while back. Is yeah. that the about the last time that you shared it, or how many times have you got the? Um, I think that's really the last time. It's been probably a couple of years now. Okay. So let's first really kind of what's got you here. You talked about um, overcoming a lot of nerves and uh, social awkwardness as you kind of grew up and into the point of being able to share your testimony uh, for that first time, and and now here on this platform um kind of just briefly tell me about that journey of overcoming those nerves and maybe what would you encourage others that are battling nerves to share their testimony well i've pretty much always been a little socially awkward my whole life and not quite as bad as it used to be but still dealing with some of that stuff i think um Honestly, I think a lot of it just got better with age and maturity as I grew older. A lot of times I just had to kind of bite the bullet and suck it up and deal with it, which is probably horrible advice, but that's what I did. Um, and I think when it comes to these kind of things, you know, telling intimate stories about yourself, like a testimony and things, I think practicing to, you know, your family, your mom, your spouse, something like that probably helps because mm. you're less likely to throw stuff at you or something like that, you know? <laughs> right. Um or practice in front of a mirror is what we did in high school a lot if you had to give a speech in front of your class or something you know but you know i think if god's put on our heart to share a testimony then he'll make a way and he'll make it happen for you you know moses he had a stuttering problem he couldn't talk very well and, and but he had aaron do most of the talking for him and that worked pretty well i think <laughs> you know right because God had a plan for Moses and what he did for the Israelite and everything. So mm-hmm. I think if he can do that for Moses, he can do that for you too. For sure. Um, so this this uh, episode is entitled The Midnight Hour, and you'll kind of speak to that of how God time and time again brought you out of that. So sure. I guess your first midnight hour kind of goes back to <clears throat> kind of your story of abuse. Mm-hmm. And was that from your father? Is that correct? Or I think that's where a lot of it started. Uh, my my parents divorced when I was very young. I was about three, not quite four years old yet. Um, I don't remember a lot about back then because I was still pretty pretty young and little. 
Um, I just remember lots of arguing and lots of yelling, and that's about all I can really remember from my side of things. Um, I remember my dad was nasty towards my older brother quite a bit. He was abusive towards him a lot, and I remember him like smacking him around and holding him down and just pummeling in the face over and over and over again and yelling and cursing at him. And, you know, you just dismiss it as we're just wrestling. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But even at that age, I knew that wasn't quite right. It was just wasn't adding up to me. But uh, growing up, you know, after my parents divorced, my mom was given full custody of me and my dad got visitations and they were supervised by somebody from church or something like that. Usually a family, a friend or something that my mom and I trusted. And, you know, it was okay. You know, we went to the zoo or go out to a movie or something like that. It was fun. Um, but when I was nine, my mom walked in and my dad molesting me. And uh, he admitted to doing that at least half the visits he had over at our house. And, uh, of course, my mom called the sheriff's department and they sent a deputy out. And the deputy said, was questioning my dad about what happened allegedly. And my dad looked him right square in the face and denied it multiple times. Took a polygraph test twice and passed it, saying he didn't do a thing. And it's my testimony alone that kept him out of jail because, you know, it can't really go off a of a he said, she said when it comes to these kind of allegations and whatnot. But back in the early 90s, we didn't really have the same awareness and education we have about child abuse now. And it was a whole different thing back then. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just now starting to rise up and... I could have very easily dismissed it as just tickling or wrestling or playing around things that dads do with their kids. And so from about nine on, I never really saw my dad. You know, he'd send me letters and stuff once in a while and presents for my birthday, those kinds of things. But as I got older, they became fewer and further between. And he just kind of drifted away and cut himself off from me eventually. And he blamed my mom for it, for keeping us apart. Cause you know, she had the letters, she had the presents and stuff like that. But I knew that was a lie cause my job was getting the mail. That was my tour growing up. So I knew before she did, if I ever got anything from him. And so years and years and years went by of just nothing. And finally, when I hit my early twenties, I was like, you know what? I'm an adult now. I'm a man. This time I kind of confronted this and tried to reconcile and patch things up with them a little bit. So I hunted him down and met up and got reconnected again. And it was just like he never left. We were close again. We started talking back and forth and texting and phone calls and letters and presents and stuff again. It was great. And then it stopped again. And it's been back and forth, back and forth, even until recent years. You know, you kind of come and go a lot. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of my deep seated issues started at was just from not really having a strong father presence growing up. So there's big uh, statistics on, on an absent father in the homes and with violence and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they try to push that off as not, not the issue, but it definitely is. And you can testify to that. Absolutely. What kind of effects did that have on you um, going through like grade school, high school, even now, um, do you still have any lasting effects of that abuse or just the in and out father? I don't, I think currently suffer from any of the issues that kind of evolved from that because I'll probably dive more into that a little bit later. But growing up, it was hard because, 
you know, I idolized my dad growing up for the longest time and what little boy doesn't, you know, when I grew up, I wanted to be just like him because he was my hero. And, you know, as I grew older, the more and more I realized he wasn't really hero material and far from it, yeah. I think. But, you know, since I've become a father myself now in the last couple of years or so, you know, it was hard in the beginning because I never knew how to be a dad because my dad never showed me how. Right. And I kind of had to figure a lot of stuff out on my own. I mean, my mom, she can only do so much being my mom, but, you know, I had figures that kind of came into my life over the years here and there to kind of help me through some spots, but I wasn't really one consistent, you know, person through all those years. Mm-hmm. So I think not really having that influence, not really having that role model to look up to was pretty hard growing up, especially going through, you know, adolescence and the more trying times of your life and going through the changes that boys go through growing up, you know, with, you know, body changes or hormones, whatever else, you know, because those conversations are kind of awkward to have with your mom. <laughs> don't really carry yeah. the same weight. You know, I didn't have anyone to show me how to throw a curveball or how to fix a car or change a flat tire or anything. I had to figure out step out on my own, mm-hmm. you know? So how do you feel that's kind of shaped you now? Um, has it pushed you to be better than that? Um, I know a lot of people get kind of trapped into following, falling into the same kind of path as their, their father, if he wasn't the greatest or whatever. Right. Um, have you ever struggled with that same path? And if not, how has that pushed you to be a better uh, father to the kids you have? I think, Honestly, everything I've gone through with my dad has pushed me a lot to force myself to not be like that person at all. And, you know, I have my moments, you know, I lose my temper and stuff like that. And we all struggle and screw up from time to time. Yeah. But, you know, I am me. I choose where my life goes. I choose what comes from my actions because I make them. No one makes them for me. Right. And, you know, as a father myself now, I want my kids to have everything that I never had growing up, which was a present dad who loved them and fight to the death for them. And, you know, there is nothing in this world I would not do for my kids. Right. So let's look here at um, a couple things that you went through sure. um, with ADD and bullying. Let's kind of talk about both of those. All right. Um, so first of all, I... ADD, is that something you overcame or is it still something you deal with today? I still struggle with it a lot. You know, I was on all kinds of medication growing up for it and everything usually made it worse or did nothing at all. Mm-hmm. The worst was not fun because I got in a lot of trouble then. You know, I was in the principal's office a lot growing up because of just how I'd act. And again, not having a dad to kind of show me the way and how to be a man and everything growing up probably didn't help too much. But I just learned to cope with it and deal with it over time. Uh, you know, my wife kind of helps keep me on track a lot and she's kind of my brain a lot of times and coffee helps a lot too. <laughs> help me stay focused. And right. so, yeah. Um, so what about bullying? Tell us some, uh, kind of some cases of when you fell into that. I'm assuming that was mostly in, in school. Yeah. Um, th- kind of talk to us about the struggles of that. And that's a real thing. Um, how you dealt with that and, and what would be your message to those that's kind of going through that same um, cycle of bullying right now? Well, 
Growing up out of kind of on both ends of the bullying spectrum, you know, I was on the receiving and the delivering end quite a bit. Um, now, you would think me pretty much always being the biggest kid in school, I'm the last person in the world you want to probably bully around. But, you know, I was the shy, quiet kid with a stuttering problem and ADD who was a mama's boy. So I was bully bait <laughs> big time. I uh, never played sports. I wasn't really a big muscular person growing up. I was always the shy, quiet, fat kid, you know, and I dealt with it and just swept it under the rug for years and years and years until I came into my early teens and I learned how to fight back and I did it a lot. Mm -hmm. I got in fights. I got in trouble with the cops a lot growing up in school and I got suspended. I got detention all the time. I was, I was a terrible kid growing up and I paid for my choices big time and and all cops came and slapped the cuffs on me a lot when I was in junior high. And I distinctly remember one time I was actually in cuffs about to get hauled off to juvenile hall, a juvenile detention center. And the cop had a call he needed to provide backup to someone else had a more serious situation. So I basically had a pinky promise him not to do it again. Sure. And that's kind of how that one ended up. But, uh, one thing I have learned a lot is, you know, you can be taught how to fight, you know, physically, you can be taught how to throw a punch, how to shoot a gun, how to use a knife. That's easy stuff. But the one weapon that you cannot be taught is how to fight with your heart and how to fight with with your head. And, you know, once you lose consciousness of, you know, who you are as a person and who God called you to be, you lose conscious of your heart and your mind, then you've already lost that, that fight. So even if you did know karate or, you know, Kung Fu or whatever else, it doesn't matter if you're not ready and psychologically ready to be in that fight. And sometimes that means walking away. Sometimes that means talking it out. You know, sometimes that means getting help, you know. So, you know, not every learning to fight back with your heart and not always jumping into things, you know, hot headed has been kind of helpful, I think, to me. So how hard was it to um, find forgiveness for those people? Because God says revenge is his, right? And right. how hard was that to forgive people um, in your heart and, and battle that like that? And did you ever have to go, did you ever go to anybody that bullied you? And like, because you hear about those stories where you go back and say, I forgive you for doing that, whatever. Do you have any of those moments or, or just personally? Kind uh, of with people in school, not so much. Because you know you only with them for a couple of years and you move on and go your separate ways in life. Excuse me. I think the biggest story about forgiveness and redemption in that regard is probably between me and my dad. Because uh -huh. fairly recently, actually, I sent him an email and told him, you know, I'm tired of how things have been going my entire life with our relationship, and it's always been up and down, up and down. It's always been one-sided relationship and I'm tired of all the crap. I'm tired of the drama. I'm tired of the blaming the false accusations and the lying and, and called him out and said, you know, our past has not been good. It has not been pretty at all by any means, but you're still my dad and I should love you and I still forgive you. And I think since then we have a distant relationship, but the distant relationship we have, I feel is more genuine than we've had in the past. You know, I feel we have something real just not close and i'd rather be you know i'd rather be you know real and distant than close and fake you know right so you kind of went down a road of 
um, some depression, cutting, suicidal ideation. Did bullying lead into that or kind of talk about the midnight hour of, of that? I think a lot of that was just a combination of stuff stacking up over years and years. Some of that was issues with my dad. I haven't really got resolved yet. Some of it was bullying. Some of which was my mom, who I love her to pieces. She's a great woman, and I learned a lot from her growing up. But she tried to hold me back a lot growing up, and she tried to shelter me a lot. I know she had the best intentions, but, you know, too far is too far, I think. And um, you know, she, she kind of helped me back a lot from social issues, which probably didn't help with my social awkwardness a lot. And, you know, just everything kind of building up and building up. And eventually I just exploded. And when I was about 17, I started struggling with depression a lot. Um, I just didn't want to live anymore because I couldn't forgive myself for what I've done. I couldn't process what my dad did to me. I just couldn't deal anymore. And I got to the point where I was suicidal and I started cutting myself a lot. And I was in treatment off and on for several months. And I was just a wreck. I think after that, um, you made mention of a couple that, mm-hmm. that that came in and visited you during that time at the mental health center as you were dealing with some of that stuff. And you quoted when I was reading over some of your notes that you said, they showed you God more in one hour than you had seen in 17 years. Um, Kind of talk about them and talk about that moment. Sure. Um, There was a couple from the church I went to at the time. They were a part of the hospital visitation ministry that they had. And if someone was, you know, laid up for surgery or something, they go in and visit them and stuff like that. So it's kind of their thing. But when they came in to see me, they knew nothing about me. I think my name was David and I was 17, going through a rough time. And that was all they knew. They didn't know my detail, they didn't know my story, my background, my life, or anything. And they didn't quote scripture, they didn't, you know, lay hands on me, they didn't put oil on my head or none of that stuff. They just talked to me. They showed me love. They treated me like I was one of their their own kids. And you know, I think evangelism one oh one is if you're trying to witness to somebody, don't quote scripture. It doesn't really carry any weight. You know, you gotta come to them where they're at and actually show them God's love, not just read it out of the book. When that couple came in and visited me in the hospital, you know, they didn't know me from Adam, but they just showed me, they didn't tell me, they showed me God's love and what the Bible really said about loving the lost and reaching out to them. And even after I was discharged from treatment for the last time, you know, they still stepped into my life and they helped me out a lot. And, you know, the, the, the husband out of that couple, uh, Bob was his name. He was probably one of the first father figures I had in my life. He taught me how to drive a car. He helped me get my permit and my license and everything. I helped him do some work on his house and we go out for coffee and just talk about what's happened a bad day or something. And, you know, it just wasn't a one time, you know, here's a handout, pray for you. God bless you. And turn around and walk out the door. You know, he was in there and he stayed there and he became a part of my life. That's huge. Um, to be shown God's love and not just told talked about it, right. you know, um, is that something you try to apply to people in your witness now is to really show, show Christ and not just say, I'm praying for you. Uh, come to church with me. Like just kind of the cliche things that we, it's easy to witness with. Um, how do you think that's impacted you with your witness now? Um, 
Well, I try to take a very similar approach when I'm trying to witness to somebody. You know, I don't like, I don't want to hear a sermon. I want to see a sermon, you know. And, you know, I fail often as we all do as far as, you know, walking the Christian life and everything. But, you know, I try my best just by how I carry myself and how I treat other people and how I serve and everything to kind of set the example. And, you know, I had to show people that Christianity is more than showing up to church and hearing a sermon and raise your hand and sing for a little while. It's, it's a walk. Mm-hmm. It's consistent. Yeah. So was this kind of the point where you, was this a pivotal moment for you from all the stuff we've previously talked about? Um, is this kind of like when you started getting your feet on the ground and, and looking more towards the, more of the Christian life? That's where I think a lot of it started at, but you know, growing up, I was kind of back and forth there for a little while, but that was probably one of the first pivotal moments in my Christian walk. So after this, you kind of um, started dating a girl and moving towards your first marriage. Yeah. Um, you mentioned some red flags, and you don't have to go into great detail, but just talk about the importance of seeing red flags in a relationship and the importance of listening to them and then kind of God's plan of how he saved you from uh, suicide and, and brought you out of, of that leading you on to um, the marriage you're in now that um, has been a very good one. Well, I think to kind of summarize a little bit uh, at the time, I didn't really have very high self-esteem. I didn't really hold myself in very high regard at the time. Um, but if I found a girl who was remotely attractive, who found me at least a little bit attractive also, that was good enough. You know, I didn't care if they could bodies in their freezer or anything like that. You know, <laughs> I just didn't care because I just wanted to be loved. I wanted to have that connection with somebody. And, you know, I found that. And this woman that I had initially married for a long time, actually. And, you know, there was a lot of red flags I ignored with, you know, her behavior and how she treated me and this thing she said and did. And I just ignored it because, you know, I have somebody, I'm in a relationship, I'm loved. You know, I had that, you know, surface feeling of having a connection with somebody, but it was just that, it was on the surface. When it came to the nitty gritty, it wasn't there. And I just ignored it and swept it under the rug. It's okay, you know, I'll just pray and God will deliver me, God God will make it better, you know. And I just kind of let it be and you know, we ended up, I ended up actually moving out here to Arkansas for her originally. Uh, we did the online dating thing for about a year and a half and it wasn't working out. One of us had to make the move. So I drew the short straw. So I came out here and it was a struggle at first, you know, the culture shock and having to adjust from moving to big town to Harrison, Arkansas, which was huge. And I moved from Harrison to Green Forest and I hated my life even more, <laughs> right. but, uh, you know, I let it go on and on and on for about a month shy of seven years, and then it just crumbled. And I ended up getting a divorce, and I ended up losing a lot of friends in the process. And I just about walked away from church altogether because I was done. I remember you sharing with me before. Um, I think it was one day we were going to get you some rabbits or something. You were telling me how during that time, how church people just kind of disowned you because yeah. you had went through a failed marriage and and stuff and uh you know not showing just like that couple showed you christ love they're doing the exact opposite and you know you weren't welcome there because of of a past and that's 
we see that too much, honestly, and it's a shame that Christian people push people out because of what they consider sin or or shameful or whatever. And it's not not for us to decide. We're called to show Christ's love and not to judge people for any of that. To have discernment with things, but not not a judgeful mindset and right. a con- condemnation uh, towards people. So after that, um, you fell back into kind of a depressed state, correct? And yeah. had, uh, had some suicide attempts. Talk about that and then leading into when you experienced men's encounter for the first time through that ministry and knowing those things to the cross and how God delivered you from that. Sure. Um, well, when I was kind of at my darkest hour with my first marriage and everything, uh, heading kind of towards the end, I was already in kind of a weakened state in my heart and in my soul and everything at the time. So I was wide open for an attack from the devil at the point in my life. And I fell into it. And I met somebody. I just started out being a harmless friend. We started talking about guns or, you know, whatever else. And we had a lot in common and it kind of built and built and built. And eventually I got a little more emotionally invested than I probably should have, especially still being married at that point. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I, when that kind of blew up in my face, I, I just came unhinged and I snapped. And fortunately, my wife at the time, you know, she had to go to her parents' house to go do some stuff or whatever. I don't remember what she was doing. But I was left home alone, which was probably a huge mistake because I should not have been alone in that time. And, you know, I just fell to an all-time low and I was at the point where I had my face buried in the carpet, fingers not all over the place, screaming and crying my head off because I wanted to die. Because, you know, not only have I failed my marriage, but I screwed up. You know, it didn't turn physical with the other girl, thank goodness, but it's just more of an emotional thing. But an affair is still an affair. And as wrong is still wrong. And so twice over, I hated myself and I just couldn't move on with my life anymore. And I knew since I legitimately gave my wife a reason to question my fidelity and question, you know, my loyalty to her, she, she never would let that go and I would never heal from it. So if you got a wound, you're going to heal from eventually, you're going to die. You know, if it's a stab wound or an emotional wound or whatever else, you know, and, you know, I was... I was rough. I called every friend I had trying to find some kind of, some kind of healing, some kind of leg up to get out of this pit I was in. And eventually I got a hold of a friend of mine where I texted him back and forth for a little while because I just couldn't talk on the phone because I was just so wrecked. And he spent just an hour, at least an hour or so just talking to me and kind of get my mind going in a different direction and everything. And uh, eventually I just had to walk away from that marriage because you know, I, we couldn't deal with it anymore. And there was nothing left to save anymore, which sucks because, you know, the Bible says divorce is wrong, but, you know, even if you had legit round of getting divorce, it still doesn't hurt any less. And, you know, trying to get back to my feet again, you know, going through bachelorhood all over again, I went through some highs and lows there and ended up once I kind of got on the healing uh, train again, you know, I started getting out there and dating again and seeing some people. And that led to a lot of moments I'm not really proud of. But I met some rather shady people on the way there. 
but eventually I met my wife and married to Anel Christie. She's an amazing woman. And I met her on an online dating app of all places. And I just sent her a message, you know, hey, you seem cool, do you want to talk kind of a thing. Just kept it kind of simple and basic. And we messaged back and forth a little bit. And and we agreed to meet up in person and have coffee and we talked. And now I saw her get out of her car originally. And I saw the long denim skirt and the long hair and the very minimalistic makeup and piercings. And I thought, all the grace one was like uber religious zealot types, you know. So I was extra dry, extra boring, extra not me. I didn't want to scare her off and put her in an awkward place or anything. But we still seemed to get along pretty well. And uh, come to find out, she thought that was nice but boring. But she decided to give me a second chance. Excuse me. So we came over to my house and I made dinner and a movie and started the movie at six o'clock at night and the movie ended about three o'clock in the morning so we'd pause it and talk for a while watch some more and pause it and talk for a while right that seemed like it was just a matter of minutes not hours that she was there and uh we ended up getting married and you know she had a kid from a previous marriage and so i was stepping into fatherhood instantly mm-hmm. and that was horrifying because i never had kids before and i certainly didn't have any fathers in my life to show me that way yeah. so i was there's a whole new world just opened up to me like like that without any warning or anything. And, you know, he's a sweet kid. He's he's my, he's my boy. And I love him to pieces. You know, and since then, we've had several more kids come in who we tried to win the foster care and stuff about a year ago. That's been an adventure in and of itself. But uh, Men's Encounter, uh, that was probably one of the most pivotal moments in recent years in my Christian walk uh ryan who's in charge of our men's group at church he invited a bunch of the guys out to this thing it was up in lebanon missouri and it was to call it a men's retreat is probably a gross understatement because it's not a retreat a men's retreat i think of like a guest speaker come and talk for a while and break up into small groups and pray for a bit then play volleyball for a while and go to bed (laughs) you know (laughs) this was not a retreat it's more of a full funnel holy spirit assault like God sticking your head in the curb and stomping your brains out kind of a thing because <laughs> it'll break you down in the very core. Yeah. And, you know, everything you think you know about God and who he is and how he loves you is wrong until you go to that thing. Mm-hmm. And they'll set you a whole different direction. And, you know, one of the things that we did on the very first night of Men's Encounter is they're all given a piece of paper and a pencil or pen or something. And you got to write down, you know, what your biggest struggle is, what your biggest sin is, what your biggest whatever is, mm-hmm. whether it's an addiction or a habit or a relationship or whatever else. And there's this big wooden cross, and we all got a hammer and a nail and got a nail that thing to the cross. And, you know, that was huge. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I had nailed onto that cross and it stayed there. And, you know, it's completely a shift my world ever since. I've had the privilege of going twice to Men's Encounter, and it's it's life changing every time you go. Mm-hmm. The first time you go absolutely wrecks you, mm-hmm. especially with the notes at the end and different yeah. things like that. Hopefully, we're not spoiling it for somebody. But um, even then, though, the second time you kind of go back, like you know, I think I'm a pretty strong Christian or whatever, and mm-hmm. you go back and and uh, just get gutted again with with kind of your uh, faults and stuff. You're going to nail to the cross and. And it's, you know, testimony driven and to be in a room of 500 men that are transparent and putting their pride down for a weekend 
is powerful. It is. And you get to experience that of like a humble man and what God can do through that mm-hmm. versus us being full of pride and resistant to the Holy Spirit and being sensitive to that. And so if, if anybody here listening to this uh, hasn't been to Men's Encounter, and they also have a women's uh, side of that too, um, it's Men's Encounter Ministry. Uh, check it out. And it is super powerful. Um, it will change your life. And so just knowing those things of the cross, and that's the beauty of the cross, um, that we can just return to that foot of the cross all the time and and put those things at God's feet and nail them down uh, for the prize that he's already paid for us to give us life and set us free from that stuff. So um, it's awesome to hear that you finally got to nail those things down. Um, kind of talk to us a little bit more here of after you nailed those things down, things are good with Christy. Um, kind of uh, what has God really blessed you guys with and, and where has he brought you since then? Oh, man, our relationship has been one adventure after the other. A um, little backstory, actually, when we first got married, we we're both big into homesteading and being more self-reliant and stuff like that. And that was kind of one of our key conversation topics that kind of brought us together to begin with. Because we're big into the whole uh, homeopathic, all-natural, essential oil kind of stuff, the voodoo witch doctor magic, you know. Yeah. And I'm more on the food kind of side of things. But anyway... So we had this whole plan figured out and I come to find out, don't make plans because God always wrecks them for you. <laughs> but our plan was we're going to live in my apartment for a while where I was staying for a few months. She had a camper on her parents' property. We're going to live in there basically rent free and get some money saved up and buy some property and build a cabin or something and kind of start doing our own self-reliant off the grid homestead and all that stuff. Well, their property we had the camper on was completely off grid. It had solar pa- solar panels for their power and a water collection for all the water. It was enough to sustain them, but not them plus the camper. So we had to go into town and get water a lot and power eh, didn't always have it, which meant summer came along and you're living in a giant metal box of death <laughs> and sleeping on a very short bed for a six foot four man was not fun, especially in the dead of summer when Kind of close to your wife and you're sticking to each other because of all the humidity. It's just it's just nasty. It's, it's not very fun. Right. And then winter came along and we were like, we're going to die in this camper. <laughs> you know, we'd have to wear like 10 layers of clothes and stuff. And we wouldn't even change our clothes for a week because we didn't want to take any of them off because it was too cold. Right. So we ended up staying with her aunt and uncle for a while until we can kind of get back on our feet again. And we got the house where we're at now. But, you know, the house we're in now was kind of a kind of a god thing i think because the house we're in now was way too big for just me christy and america it, it didn't make any sense at the time but more her than me at the time just felt that was the house we were supposed to get and i was like all right whatever so we ended up getting the house and signing for it and the house just felt empty and like something was missing from it for a long time and then uh we talked about getting into foster care or adopting at some point just to have some more kids and have marry someone to play with. And it just was that a conversation and that was it. Never really pursued it or just kind of let it go a lot of times. But uh, eventually she found this website called Project Zero, which we've been connected quite a bit with over the last year or so since we've been doing this whole thing. And they take a lot of the rough cases that uh, need placements but no one else wants like older kids or larger sibling groups or people that have disabilities or developmental delays or behavioral issues or something like that and they need adoptive homes right now 
and there's page after page after page and video after video and picture after picture of kids getting home right now and it just breaks you yeah you know we can only read so many of those before you burst into tears so we looked through all those and found a sibling group we really liked we're like those are going to be our kids so with that sibling group in mind we started doing the whole foster care process getting trained to the call and stuff like that and getting opened up for foster care the second we got opened up for foster care our sibling group was gone we're like what the crap <laughs> so uh our caseworker who got us opened initially uh she already had us pre-matched with the sibling group already before we even got open it was uh i think she was nine months old at the time and her newborn sister who was still at the hospital in little rock who had some issues there so like a day after we opened we already got these kids placed in our home and you know that's been a blessing it's been an adventure you know having to raise babies now and then we took in a 14 year old girl bella who we just adopted actually about a week ago she's this really sweet girl and then we got a couple more placements with us and now our house is beyond full but it's been a huge blessing just having kids around to love on and to kind of pour into and getting them involved with the home setting and stuff also has been kind of nice and kind of get them outside and get them involved in doing stuff that's not on their phone yeah. uh, it's been we've been beyond blessed just having the life that we have right now and the kids we have together and i wouldn't have it any other way yeah, that's awesome uh congratulations on your recent adoption by the way thank you um so six in the house now most yeah. of them being the foster care just picked up um, a couple extra ones or i guess a, a new one in the past week and then a extra one on top of that that's you know uh, helping out with that situation so it is really cool to see god's healing in your life leading to from your abuse to the childhood trauma and stuff um to where <laughs> maybe you wouldn't want to be a father to now God is like, this is the path I brought you to, mm -hmm. to foster these kids, to be the hands and feet to the least of these out here um, in that ministry that you have in those testimonies and being able to bring that same healing touch that God gave you to them, because most of these kids probably have a little bit of baggage, a little bit of trauma in their own lives. Um, so that's really cool to see God working you through that to then you be able to give, um, to them, do you feel like God equipped you for this that you're going through right now? Absolutely, because you know a lot of the kids you'll find that are in foster care have similar stories that were just like mine. Mm -hmm. You know, they come from abusive backgrounds, from you know having bad parents to being abused in school a lot, or some kind of trauma they've gone through that was very similar to what I've gone through growing up my entire life. So. You know, Christy and I both, we have our own trauma from our past and everything. So we get it in a way as a lot of other parents don't usually. Mm -hmm. And so I think God has absolutely equipped us and prepared us for this very moment and for this very life that we have together right now. That's awesome. Um, a couple of things here that you had mentioned, um, kind of looking back to your midnight hours and stuff. You know, it's your testimony is you kind of started with the depression, the struggles, you get a little bit of a head and then you go right back to that. And everybody, I think that you would talk to, you kind of go back to that same place. And that's what the devil does. He takes you right back to that familiar place, that same, because he just does the same tactics all the time to get you back to the place that 
he can hold you to. He doesn't have power over our lives, but he can use those little things like whether it's depression, anxiety, fear, certain sins. He'll bring you right back to that same thing, that same sin that easily sets us back. Um, and it was it was that for you. And he and you quoted in here that the devil doesn't um, come into your life with the classic red face, horns, you know, tail, pitchfork. He shows up like everything you would want in this world. He he's that wolf in sheep's clothing that says, "Hey, this this is flashy. This is uh, this will entertain you. This will satisfy you." Ooh, shiny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ooh, shiny. We trail after it if we're not careful, and then we're right back in that same trap. Mm-hmm. Um, but the flip side of that, um, you shared a Brennan Manning quote that said, "God wants you to come to Him as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are." as we should be. That's a powerful statement. Um, it makes me think of that David Crowder song, come as you are. Yeah. Good song. Um, but even though we're in our midnight hour, God says, come, even though we're in our depression, God says, come. And we always, another lie of the devil is you have to clean up, shape up and be a quote, good Christian or quote, a good person before you can come to God. That's not what his blood was shed for. That's not what the cross is about. If we were perfect, or in good standing, why would we need to know anything to the cross? So coming as we are, because none of us are as we should be. And that's that's why you're here. That's why you have your testimony. Mm-hmm. That's what this podcast is all about, to to share your story of you coming as you are and seeing what God and only God can do to restore that. Um, so awesome stuff, powerful stuff. Uh, and I thank you so much for sharing uh, your heart today and uh, reflecting back on those things. I know some of this stuff may not be easy to talk about. Um, but as we wrap it up here, um, you talked about breaking the Oliverio curse. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful thing. What is that? What do you think that curse is? And talk about breaking that and where you see that leading uh, for your family, your boys. Uh, for me... I think what I called the Olive Royal Curse was, you know, looking back on my family history, you know, before I came into the picture, one generation after another, I had a deadbeat father, one after another, after another, after another, for years and years back. And, you know, that curse ends with me, because like I said, I choose my life, I choose which direction it goes. And, you know, my father's mistakes are his mistakes, they're, they're not mine. His sins are his sins. They are not mine. And I'm choosing to live for my kids. I'm choosing to be the dad that they need to have in their life. I'm choosing to do everything I can to let Christ reflect in my life to my kids and be the dad that they need to have that I never had. And, you know, that curse, my kids are never going to have. I'm going to be in their life. And I'm going to teach my kids, my boys, how to be men. I'm going to teach my girls what kind of men they're supposed to marry when they grow older, like 40 years from now. <laughs> you know, right. you know, I'm going to be what I never had and that my kids need to have. Yeah. God will has, and will equip you to do exactly that. David, thank you so much for being here today. And, you, uh, you bet guys, no matter where you're at, no matter where you are in your midnight hour, whatever that looks like, come as you are, let God clean you up, shape you up, nail it to the cross. Get out there and share your testimony. Remember that your story could be the key to unlocking someone else's prison. So get out there and share your testimony, and we'll catch you in the next one.